if we're going to understand who we are, um, there are several places we could look. Some people would say we need to look introspectively. We need to learn more about our own selves. Um, we try to get to, to know ourselves better. Maybe we need to have a course in self-esteem. That would be the way to get to know ourselves better. But but really, knowing God or knowing ourselves comes from knowing who God is. In order for us to know ourselves, we have to look at who God is. And the, the logical place to start is in the Scriptures. And what are the fir- first four words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Okay, so in the beginning, God. We have at the very beginning um, the the assumption that God exists. And, and we really are a smaller part of a greater history, part of the human race. And so in order to see ourselves, in order to know who we are, we need to, to see where we belong in this big mosaic picture. What, what, who are we and, uh, and why do we exist? And, the, and in order to do that, we need to understand who God is. Because without a clear and accurate knowledge of, of the character and the true nature of God, then things will be unclear and uh, the principles of, of life will, will, be, um, will be foggy for us, meaningless really. Like uh, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, it's, when, when I consider these things based on my own understanding, it, it seems to be meaningless. And so we need to, uh, to look at the Scriptures to see where the meaning comes from. So let me begin by um, just looking at this doctrine from our church's statement of faith. And I'm trying to include a section of our statement of faith in each one of these, or at least where it applies. And today we're going to study the doctrine of God, that is, theology proper. And and this is our statement from um, from our statement of faith. It says, we believe that there is only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, that he is inexpressibly glorious in holiness, that he is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the three are equal in every divine perfection that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption." So, if you are a believer, you know God. And really, this becomes the foundation for, for truth. Um, think about it. You know, you know God, and you can come to know God even better by looking at His Word. And that really is the goal of the Christian, to get to know God better. Paul, I, I often mention these verses from Philippians 1, verses 9-11, through 11, that he prays that we would grow in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we would grow in the knowledge of His will. And the way that we do that is obviously through His words, and that's through His Word, and that's why we spend so much time emphasizing that, 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 that we ought to be in the Word ourselves and be, um, be under its teaching as well. And it should be a pursuit in our life that never ends. It doesn't stop at some point where we, okay, we know God enough. Um, uh, we, we continually get to know Him, and it should be a, a pursuit that's very practical and, and uh, exciting for us. 
and life-changing. And uh, so what we're going to do today is, is I want to introduce you to three basic truths about God. Uh, introduce maybe a little bit uh, elementary because, or the wrong word because you already know these things, but I want to remind you about three things about God. All right, and these are three basic truths that form the foundation for all biblical understanding. And these truths are that number one, God exists. All right, God exists. So we'll talk about the existence of God. Number two, God is a person. And then number three, God is a triunity. All right, so let's take the first one God exists. We begin this morning by thinking about the existence of God. Um, so, if someone were to ask us, is there a God? Is there a God? We should first note that, that the Bible doesn't spend time arguing that God exists. That's why I mentioned earlier the first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. Not, this is why you should believe that there is a God. Okay? What the Bible could have done, what God could have done in His Word, is He could have laid out arguments, okay, philosophical type arguments, saying, this is why we know God exists. Here is the, 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 uh, the uh, case-closed type of proof that God exists. But that's not how the Bible... In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it, it try to prove God's existence. It simply assumes that He does exist. And, and I'll tell you why that is here in just a minute. And so, when we come to the Bible, we actually come with a, a pre-understanding. A word I've used before is presuppositional. We already have an understanding about God, that He exists. Every person knows that there is a God, according to Romans chapter 1. All right. And so, there, there were two assumptions that we were going to have coming into this class. Number one was that God exists, and number two is that the Bible is true. If God exists, and if God is, is perfect, and he, he, His words are perfect, then what He writes is perfect as well. And so His word is true. Those two assumptions we're not going to cynically um, question. We're going to take those as fact. So if someone were to ask you why you think God exists, what would you say? And here's, here's what I think we can give as an answer right here. Okay, if we are Christians, we can say that we believe God is really there because He has revealed Himself to all men generally. Okay, in, in this, this phrase here, all men, we're not just talking about all men in this room, we're talking about all people. All people without exception. That every single person in the world has had God revealed to them generally by creation and providence. That doesn't mean they can get saved through that. It simply means that they know that God exists. And then we also know God is really there because He has revealed Himself propositionally, or you could write specially. Propositionally, that just means in a, um, in a written type of form, in a, in a, in a logical type of form, okay, propositionally, in the Scriptures and the Old and New Testaments. So, every single person has had God revealed to them in this way, but God has also revealed Himself to other people which includes you, you've, you've had the opportunity to hear the Word of God in the Old and New Testament. Many people have not. Okay, so this is what's called special revelation. That is, God comes to a specific group of people, not to everybody, but to a specific 
group of people and tells them a limited amount of a more a more specific amount of information. Okay, rather, this is more general. And then we know he exists because personally, he has revealed himself to us personally in his son. That's almost that's uh, almost uh, synonymous with God revealing himself in the New Testament. Because that's basically what the Scriptures are about. They're about Jesus the Christ. And then finally, savingly, through the work of His Word and His Spirit. So we can say we believe God exists because He has revealed Himself to all men generally, to several people propositionally, and then personally in His Son, and then savingly through His work. Turn to Romans chapter 1 because I've been alluding to this passage. I've alluded to this on several occasions and sometimes it's not as helpful when I just uh, quote something as if we just look at it for ourselves. Okay, this is, this is how we know that every single person knows that God exists. That, that they know that there is a God the true God. They, they know that there is the Creator. We'll begin in chapter 1 of Romans in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Okay, so so this is not talking about believers specifically, that they know that, that God's invisible nature, His eternal power and divine nature. It's not, verse 18 makes it clear that that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. In fact, this is the reason why they can be judged. Because they know that God exists. And yet they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19 and 20 are the ones we want to focus on. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. And then at the end of verse 20, it has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So when you talk to somebody about God, you don't have to give them proofs for why God exists. When you talk to them about God, just start talking as if they believe that He does exist, because they do. Now, they may say, I'm an atheist, but, uh, but, but they're only a practical atheist. That is, the fool says, Psalm says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But what they're doing here, the text tells us, is that they're suppressing the truth, verse 18. They're suppressing that truth about God. So, so when you talk to, to people about God, you simply assume that they know He exists because they do. You don't have to give, uh, lend proofs for it or anything like that. Now, now, it would be helpful to take them to Scripture and show them uh, you know, God in the Scriptures and so on, but, but uh, we, we ultimately don't have to give them uh, a list of proofs. The the creation itself is good enough for man to know that God exists. I mean, they see the rain, the sun, the human body, how complex it is, um, 
you know, reproduction process, uh, so on. They, they know that there's intelligent Creator, and that they have been made into their to His image. In fact, Romans two fifteen says that God has written on their hearts. Um, uh, let me just turn there. Romans two fifteen says and and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness of their thoughts, that every single person has some sense of good and evil okay, because of their conscience. God has written it on their hearts. Not only do they know God exists, but they have some sense of good and evil. I mean, who tells them that murder is wrong? Who tells them that Hitler was an evil person? I mean, do, do we have to teach people that? Uh, we simply know that when we look at the actions that these people perform, we say, yeah, that is wrong. That is against uh, what should be done, how people should be treated. And, uh, and so fallen humanity sinfully rejects the truth of God. And, um, and yet they still have some awareness of Him because, um, because it's been written into their minds and in their hearts. This may sound too simple, but it's the place where this discussion of God has to begin. Um, that we are brought face to face face with the cre- Creator, that He exists, and even though He is denied by people in the Scripture, it is stated as fact. It is stated as fact. Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created. Okay, it's stated as fact. And so no attempt is made for logical arguments or proofs of His existence. Secondly, it's revealed in the Bible. God is under no obligation to prove that He exists. We, if, if God were under an obligation to prove that He existed, he, who, would, who would He be proving that to, first of all? To us, right? And if he were under that obligation, then it would really make him a slave to us, as if he was serving us. Yet God has graciously chosen to reveal himself to us in his word, and anyone who genuinely wants to know God has to gain an understanding about him through his word. And uh, so before we get to the third point here, under God's existence, look at... um, a few things about how God has revealed Himself in the Bible. First, He's revealed Himself as the Creator. He's revealed Himself as the Creator. We saw that in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's a general revelation that He's talking about, or that that um, we were talking about earlier. That the heavens, you look into the stars, you, you look at the trees, you look at God's creation, people, animals, you recognize that God exists, that He is the Creator. It is, it is, uh, it is shouting out that God exists, Psalms 19.1 says. And the more that we learn about this universe, the more um, faith is required to believe that, that it's really just happening by a product of chance. I mean, people uh, try to point us to all these other means of, of thinking about the universe and how it all came into being, but really that requires a, 
uh, just as much, if not a lot more, faith to believe that it all happened by chance than it does through through how we understand it through the scriptures, through through God revealing Himself, through God creating. And um, so God has revealed Himself that He is the Creator. Secondly, the Bible shows that history has been planned by God. We know this because there is fulfilled prophecy in the Scripture. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 46. God is not just a powerful being, a, a more powerful being than all people on the earth. That is true. Or all forces or all demons and, and angels. And all. That's true. He is the most powerful being. But He also is in control of all things from the very beginning of all things all the way until the end. Look at chapter 46. And would someone read for us verse 10? All right, it probably should have had uh, you read verse 9. Can you read verse 9 and then um, the first part of verse 10 again? Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have never been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Good. Okay, so that, that helps us be, uh, more because... When he read 10 there, it doesn't really say who's declaring the end from the beginning. But verse 9 tells us, I am God. There is no other. There is none like Me. I declare the end from the beginning. All of My purposes, the end of verse 10 says, will come to pass. Will uh, will happen. Everything that that happens, happens because of My good pleasure. So, So we see God revealing Himself because He has planned everything that will happen. We, we're seeing this, uh, I think, clearly as we study through the book of Revelation, that the end is going to happen. It's not as if God's just rolling the dice and hoping that things kind of turn out like He plans or like He, like he hopes. Okay? Much different from our plans, right? Our plans can be thwarted by different things. We, we have a plan to, let's say, you know, retire at a certain age. Well, that can be changed because of health conditions or death or uh, some other circumstances. Uh, but God's plans cannot be thwarted, Job 42 says. When Job recognizes who God is there, he says, um, I repent and I recognize now that your plans cannot be thwarted. And thirdly, God reveals Himself um, in the Bible's record of God's act in history. The Bible is not a book that was delivered at one time without a historical context. It records the acts of God in history by which He made Himself known to man. So, so that um, so that we see that God is not just um, just laying it all out there at once. We see throughout history that that God is there, that God is working. All right. So, the scriptures state. God's existence as fact. God has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. And then thirdly, God's existence is a matter of faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. 
verse 6. Let's read uh, the first six verses. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is his existence and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, that he is a savior. Um, throughout history, there have been Christians and non-Christians alike who have tried to prove the existence of God. And they've tried to do this in order to, to get non-Christians to believe that God exists. And so they come up with all these weighty arguments. I was thinking about taking us through some of them. They, some of them go back to Plato even, and perhaps you've heard some of them. And we probably will get into those uh, when we talk about defending our faith. And I'll just uh, present those for you, not as a way to prove to people that God exists, but just to show you how some people do it. Um, they, they've been trying to use these logical proofs in order to show that God exists. And the best that these arguments can do is demonstrate God's probability. But never can they demonstrate the certainty of God's existence. All, all people know that there is a God. They don't know everything about Him, but they know that God exists. And the only way that they can know Him fully, or at least more fully, or in a, at least in a saving way, is through the Scriptures. And so Hebrews 11, 1 through 6 tells us that in order for us to please God, verse 6 says, that we have to believe that He exists. And what gives us the certainty of God's existence according to verse 1? What, what assures us that God does exist? Faith, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We want to have certainty of God's existence, then it requires faith. And um, so, notice verse 3 is it true that faith is produced by what is seen or is what is seen understood by faith? It is by faith that we understand what is seen, not the other way around. So, so here's what proofs do. They, they give us more as far as sight goes. They give us a, a, a logical way in order for us to understand these things. And if I can just see more clearly, then I will have faith. Well, what the Scriptures say is that actually the opposite. In order to see more clearly, we have to have faith. We have to believe that God exists. Alright? So, God exists. The Scriptures are clear about it. The Scriptures don't try to prove it. Simply lay it out as fact. Any questions on God's existence? Mark.
from microscopes and we opened up the world as a cell. Mm-hmm. And then you know, it improved and we opened up the world as a molecule. And then it improved again and we moved to the elemental level, which is what we are, where we are today, which is atomic particles. Mm-hmm. And they're all, you know, in perfect uniformity, perfect order, perfect alignment. Yeah. They're all spinning as they should, and they're all glued together as they should. Right. And yet they're suppressing what they already are. And yet what drives them to keep curing? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's almost as if they're looking for an inconsistency and can't find it. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, more sight is not going to lead to faith. Faith leads to greater sight or a better understanding of what we do see. Good. Thank you. Um Next, God's personality. God's personality. Let me talk about what that means. Um, most people are some way religious, that they believe in a supreme power of some kind, and that they try to worship Him. Um, but there, many are unwilling to admit that the power, that this power that they're worshiping is God. In fact, many of them are not worshiping the true God. And so there's all sorts of mystical religions and so on. Um, and they they see God. If you talk to them about God, they call Him a controlling force or an energy. Have you heard people talk like that? But the Bible is clear that He's not a force or an energy. Their God may be like that, but our God is not. He is a person. Okay, so what does it mean that God is a person? All right, because we also are persons. So that you can have a human person, you can also have a divine person. God is a divine person. And that means at least three things. Or I should say at least it, it, it means three things. First, God is an intellectual being. God is an intellectual being. So think mind. Mind. He has a mind. He is a thinking God. He, he acts with knowledge and understanding. Listen to Proverbs three nineteen and 20. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding He set the heavens in place. By His knowledge the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. God is a thinking being. Compare that to some of the other gods, or many of the other gods, if not all the other gods, that are worshipped. They're not thinking beings. Usually they are dead beings. And, um, And obviously our God is living. And so He is a thinking being. But He's also a volitional being. Okay, So the first one has to do with the mind. The second one has to do with the will. In order for... A person, uh, in order for there to be a person, he has to have a mind, will, and emotions. And that's what we're getting at here. First, he's an intellectual being. Second, a volitional being. That, that is, that he acts based on his own will. That um, he does not act according to unthinking impulse or into submission even to the laws of nature. But his actions are a matter of choice. He chooses what he wants to do according to his own purpose. We've already turned from Isaiah, but uh, the next verse after the one Mark read, verse 11 reads, From the east I summon a bird of prey from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God makes choices. He has purpose. And so he is a volitional being. He has a will. Thirdly, God is a feeling being. 
That's what I was talking about when I said the emotions. So, mind, will, and emotions. He is a feeling being. And there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of texts we could go to, um, but, but God has a full range of emotions. From joy, Isaiah 62, 5, sorrow, Judges 10, 16, compassion, Psalm 145, 8, a verse we have learned, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. That He is a compassionate God, but He's also a hateful God. Psalm 5, 5, that He hates all those who do iniquity. Or as Psalm 11, 5 says, He hates the wicked with a passion. Okay, so God has emotion. So He is a person. Uh, uh, this is very important for three reasons. Everything's coming in threes today. Um, first, for our prayer. Okay, when you walk into a room and there are two objects in the room, one a person and one a piece of furniture, which one are you more likely to talk to? Okay, If you were to walk into that room and talk to the piece of furniture, it would say something about yourself, but it would also say something about that other person, that what you valued, that you valued the piece of furniture more than, than the person. And uh, so what implication does this have for prayer? You see, um, when we talk to God, we're not talking to a piece of furniture. We're not talking to an impersonal being. We're not talking to an inanimate object. We're not talking to a dead God. We're talking to a living person. And, um, and so this should not be just some routine, some mystical experience that that makes us feel good, but we should recognize that when we're talking to God, we're actually praying to someone who hears us. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Uh, because He has inclined His ear to me, I will call upon Him as long as I live, the psalmist says. And, um, you know, our Father is a loving, compassionate being. He is the God of the universe and He is a personal being. Matthew 6, 7 says, when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because there are many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You are talking to a person. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety or your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. You're talking to a person when you talk to Him. So, so that's why we need to understand that God is the person. That's why we're, we're going through this. Secondly, this will help in our own worship of Him. Think about those who worship false gods. They're worshiping idols. And, and their gods are inanimate. They, they can't respond. They're like that piece of furniture. You talk and talk and talk. Okay, this may say this. You talk and talk and talk and there's no response. It just sits there. But that's not our God. Listen to Isaiah 46, 5-7. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down to it and worship it. They lift it on their shoulders and carry it. They set it up on its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. And comparing God to the foolishness of following after a false god, something that we have to make that we have to carry around, that we have to, like Dagon, pick back up when it falls down. And that's not our God at all. He 
is self-sufficient, but He is a person. And so, uh, when we worship God, we ought to be worshiping a person, not just an inanimate object. Um, we ought to recognize that this is actually a person that we're, we're worshiping. And thirdly, should affect our service. If we were to work for a robot or some computer system, it would be very impersonal and uh, very dutiful, we could call it. Um, But there's personal involvement with God with regard to our service, that He cares about what we're doing for Him. And um, yes, He does place duties upon us, but He's doing it for our own benefit and He's doing it um, in a personal way. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 1.29, To this end I labor, uh, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. That as we serve God, we're serving a person as, and he's working through us as we serve him. Okay, So God's personality is very important, that he has a mind, will, and emotions. He's not just some being that's way off, far, distant, uh, inanimate. No, he's, he's near, he's, he cares about us. And he um, and he he ought to be worshipped and prayed to and served in that way. Any questions on God's personality? Okay. All right. Finally, God's triunity. God's triunity. That God is a triunity. The Christian Christians have traditionally taught the doctrine of the Trinity. The word triunity perhaps has a better um, is a better way of saying it. And the term refers to the fact that there is one God that is e- eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So first, let's think about the unity of the Godhead. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, because what you should not think when you think about the Trinity is that we are polytheists. That is, we serve many gods. No. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we serve one God. Monotheistic. Someone read Deuteronomy 6 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is. The Lord is one. Okay. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Okay. So, so the Old Testament believer recognized very clearly that they were serving one God, not multiple gods. Um, and um, and uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 20 because we see in God's command when He is worshipped that He must alone be worshipped. This is the Ten Commandments given here in chapter 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before you, before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. The fact that God requires that He alone be worshipped shows us that God uh, God is one, that He is uh, one God. That's why we say God, uh, there is one God, but He exists eternally in three persons. Alright, 
so there is a unity of the Godhead, that there is one God. But now here's the diversity, and that is that He exists in three persons. Alright? Three persons. Um, let's look at... I think I'm going to have to come... Well, I'll, I'll give you this blank here. Each person is totally and equally God. Okay, so God still is one. He is unified, but He is, uh, but he is also exists as three persons. Each person is totally and equally God. Alright, so let's look at a few passages to show us this. First, um, John chapter 6, verse 27. Did I give you did I give you some other passages? Yeah, I gave you several verses there that you can look up on your own, show that that we have these three persons. First, God the Father. Someone read John six twenty seven. All right. So there, the Father and God used appositionally, that is, as equals, that God is the Father. Um, 1 Peter 1 2 also shows us that, that, that God is our Father. Secondly, the Son. Turn, to, turn back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Alright, then uh, skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. So this identifies who this Word is. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Alright, so so in the beginning was the Word. <clears throat> that is, the Word, verse 14, tells us that He was flesh. He dwelt among us. That is Jesus. So the Word was God. So we have both the Father and the Son being God. And then thirdly, of course, is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, here we can turn to... Um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3. First Corinthians three sixteen. Someone read that for us. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Okay. So the he's called there the Spirit of God, and then chapter six, verse nineteen. Similar language, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God? So you see that used uh, really interchangeably, temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's from God. So we could also say there, it's a temple of God, and whom you have from the Holy Spirit. Okay, God and the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably there. So we have a diversity in the Godhead. So without ceasing to be unity, God exists as three persons, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of these persons is totally and equally God. Now, what do you do if a co-worker brings you a pamphlet one day and asks you to discuss its contents? And here's what it gives as an explanation of the Trinity. The Bible calls God... This is what the pamphlet says. I want you to respond to this. The Bible calls God by the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That does not mean that He has three persons. Actually, these are the titles of three roles that He has filled. That He can be understood in the same way that a man can say, I am Father, Son, and Husband. A man can truly be all three, but he's still a single person. So it is with God. That's what the pamphlet reads. How do you respond to that? All right. Do you have three persons? Through a party invited God, all three will show up. They have three separate persons. Yeah. Um, you've probably seen this before, but I'll uh, just put it up here again for your benefit, because this helped me as I've thought about the Trinity. We can't fully comprehend, and that's what I was going to get to as far as its application. That that God is incomprehensible, but as as best as we can. Uh, tell from the scriptures. Okay. Whoops. This is what the Trinity looks like. Okay, these are equal signs. Okay, so the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, but this is not true. If you know math, you know which symbol I'm making here. Okay, the Father is not the Son. So the Father did not die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. Now we could say, generally, God died on the cross, but God the Son, not God the Father. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. Okay? So, so that's one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay? One God, but existing in three persons. They have different functions. So, in essence, they are the same. In essence, they are God. But in function or in the way that they, they interact with each other and with us, they're, they're different. They have different functions. Okay? So, Trish. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, uh, the Old Testament, the Old Testament saint would not have understood this very clearly. Now, all of the structure of this, all the the um, the seeds of this doctrine were in the Old Testament, but I don't think an Old Testament saint would have understood this fully. The New Testament is much more clear about it. And although we don't have one single proof text that shows us that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, we do have all three of the persons of the Trinity in one one uh, section of Scripture, or several sections, but the one I'm thinking of is the baptism of Jesus, where the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove. And what does God the Father say? This is my Son, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have all three persons and that speaks to Trish's point, is that there's a separation of function there. That, that, that it wouldn't make sense for, for... It's not some sort of schizophrenic type thing where, where the Father, the Son, 
or it's not like what this guy is saying here in this pamphlet that it's just another name for him. No, these are actually separate functions. They're not putting on separate they're not putting on coats. Okay, like here I'm going to put my God the Father coat on and then here later I'm going to put my No, they're all actually working together um but but separate functions. Mark Yeah. Yeah, you actually have us um, in verse 26 of chapter 1, let us make man in our image. Yeah, 26 and 27, right. So, um, so th- this, this structure in the Trinity has existed eternally. It wasn't like, okay, now i got to interact with people, so I need to figure out a way to do it, so I'll turn into three persons. That's not how it was. God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit existed eternally. Now, the Son didn't exist eternally as Jesus. He didn't become Jesus really until he, he became man. Now I believe He exists eternally as human. Uh, that is, uh, he, he exists as God's Son in that way for all the rest of eternity. But, um, so but, four words, in the beginning, God. Mm-hmm. Right, because you had the Spirit moving over the, the face of the water, verse 2. And then you have in, uh, I think it's Colossians 1, where it says that the Son was involved in the creation, that He was the agent of creation. So you have all three persons of the Trinity working in creation from the very time of, of its inception. So um, so we understand there to be an eternal existence of the triune God. All right? Now, why is this important? Let's see if I can find this. Um, God is incomprehensible. And uh, I think this is your last blank. He can be... He exists and can be known but He can never be fully known. And when I say He can never be fully known, I'm talking about both now and eternally. Okay, we can't fully know God. Even in eternity, we will still have finite minds, be limited in our understanding, not fully able to comprehend all about who God is. Sometimes we think when we get to the next life, boom, the light goes on. And there will be a light that goes on, but not an infinite light where we know everything. There will be this constant thing where we will be continually, like we talked about earlier, talking to God, worshiping God, serving God. And uh, and that we'll never have that exhausted. Any questions on the existence of God, His personality, or His triunity? Or comments? Bill? Uh, I don't. I don't personally. I just 
uh, borrowed that from another. Um, this on the back of your sheet there says where I borrowed these notes from. The, this one is actually from Biblical Foundations for Living, which is a. Um, Three manifestations, meaning. Yeah, so modalism, almost like he goes to his closet and puts on his, his father coat. Yeah, but, but again, that's, that's where Trish's point comes out that, that he can't. How, how does he have two coats on at the same time? So, did you have something else, Bill? Is that. All right, well, uh, let's, let me pray. I run out of time, so uh, we'll uh, pick this study up next week on the greatness of God. Father, thank You for uh, the fact that You have revealed Yourself to us and that You've so graciously allowed us to understand, at least in a, in a finite way, who You are, what You've done, Your work throughout history. Thankful that You are a personal God and we pray that You'd help us to speak to You in, that, in those ways, not as a, an inanimate object. Uh, and to worship You in that way and to serve You. Help us to do that even this hour to follow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.